Good evening, uh, everyone. Um, my name is Sumi Matok, and I teach at the Gender Institute. I welcome you all very warmly uh, to the Gender Institute 20th Anniversary Public Lecture. Um, this is a very special event. Um, very many thanks uh, to those of you who've been with us through the day for your participation, for your support, for your friendship, camaraderie, labor, and love. Um, and also to those who've, who've come in uh, and to join us uh, for the public lecture. Because this is a very special occasion, we have a very special public lecture lined up this evening. And as, I, and, and as you would have note, noted from uh, the program, we've departed from the usual. Uh, and we have with us this evening not one, but two uh, remarkable and pioneering scholars, teachers and scholars of huge distinction, who between them cover many of the inter uh, intersectional, interdisciplinary, and transnational research and teaching interests uh, uh, pursued at the Gender Institute. Um, cutting across the humanities and the social sciences, key phrase for today, cutting across the humanities and the social sciences, which in effect is, uh, is what was you know, uh, reflected and demonstrated throughout the day today in the kinds of conversations and continuing conversations and unfinished conversations that, that we had this afternoon and uh, through the morning. Um, but this is also something which makes for the very unique uh, nature of the scholarship and the teaching at the Gender Institute. Both the speakers uh, here need no introduction. You're here because you know who they are and you want to hear them. And, and, uh, but since these occasions have a certain order, let me say the following. Indrapal Grewal um, has pioneered the study of feminist transnational scholarship. Her book, particularly, uh, her book uh, in particular the one with Karen Kaplan titled Scattered Hegemonies, helped institute a paradigm shift in feminist analysis with its insistence on multidimensional and multi multinational and multilocational approach to the questions of gender. She's currently professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale. More recently, she has taught at the University of California at Irvine, where she was director of women's studies and of the PhD program in culture and theory. Her research interests include uh, transnational feminist theory, obviously, uh, gender and globalization, human rights, uh, uh, NGOs and theories of civil society, theories of travel and mobility, South Asian cultural studies, and post-colonial feminism. She is the author of the much acclaimed Herman Harem, Nation, Gender, Empire, and Cultures of Travel, and also, and more recently, of Transnational America, Feminisms, Diasporas, Neoliberalisms. And, and as I uh, referred to that, uh, to her seminal work uh, before, uh, uh, you know, which, which, which inaugurated uh, the study, if you like, of transnational gender scholarship, which was, um, which as I said, needs um, uh, no introduction to, and you probably know what it is, which is scattered hegemonies, postmodernity and transnational feminist practices. Currently, she's working on a book-length project on the relation between feminist practices and security discourses. She's also co-editing uh, a collection entitled The NGO Boom, Critical Feminist Practices. The title of uh, uh, Professor Graywell's paper today is Neoliberal Security and the Hypervisibility of Sexual Violence and the State. 
Now to Professor Sylvia Chant. Um, at the Gender Institute, we've long claimed Sylvia Chant as one of our own, and, and with very good reason. Uh, she's been a long-term supporter and an intellectual and institutional friend of the Gender Institute. Again, a pioneer in, in the field of gender inequality and poverty, Professor Chant's work has had wide impact in both academic and policy circles. She was featured as global thinker on gender and poverty in 2013 and was elected fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in 2011. She's, of course, Professor of Development Geography uh, with active uh, at the LSE with active research interests in Latin America, Southeast Asia, and West Africa. Professor Chance's uh, research focuses upon, gender, uh, focuses upon gender, poverty, migration, women's employment, household survival strategies, and female-headed households. She is the author, co-author, editor of 17 books and counting. Uh, some of her uh, really important and well-known books are um, Women-Headed Households, Diversity and Dynamics in the Developing World, Gender, Generation and Poverty, and more recently, Professor Chand has also worked on, uh, on, on the preparation of a major edited volume for, Ed, uh, for Edgar, um, Edward Elgard entitled The International Handbook of Gender and Poverty, uh, to which many of us here have contributed, um, uh, but also shows the collaborative nature of feminism feminist work and, and research and, and practice. Um, the title of Professor Chan's uh, paper is Feminization of Poverty, Win-Win, Lose-Lose, or Gains at the Margin. Uh, so here's the order of, of, of this evening's uh, uh, event. Professor Grewal will speak first for about 45 minutes and thereabout. One or two minutes here, you know, give or take. Uh, I, hear, I hear that. <laughs> and importantly, Professor Chant will also speak for, for the same, and after which we'll have Q&A for about 30 minutes thereabout. Um, and there will be a reception to follow the public lecture, to which you're all very warmly invited uh, uh, to. The reception is to honor, of course, all the speakers uh, uh, this, uh, you know, who, who came and, and contributed uh, uh, with their labor and love and support and friendship uh, through the day. Uh, our, our, you know, all of you who came and participated, plus, of course, our public lecturers today. Um, so um, without much further ado and without taking time away from the speakers, I give you Professor Graywell first and then Professor Chant. Thank you, Sumi. Um, can you hear me? I don't have to put this on, right? Thank you. I'm honored to be part of the celebrations for the Gender Institute and also so honored that just, um, I get to be hearing the wonderful talks today and the events of the day. Um, I also want to thank Claire Hemming, Sumi, and James for making this happen, making my visit possible, so, so thank you. So, you know, uh, in the midst of all these um, talks about what's happening to women in Nigeria, abducted women in Nigeria, and calls, I don't know if you have them in the, U in the UK newspapers, but at least in the US, for the US Army to go in, the military to go in and rescue the girls. Um, and there's a quick amnesia about the last rescue mission of the Afghani girls here. Um, and then, you know, I think of those assaults by the military and the police on Egyptian young women in the protests, uh, uh, in the Tahrir Square protests. 
Um, widespread discussion of sexual assaults on campuses, military um, in the United States. Um, I'm, so I've become very interested in the ways in which questions of sexual violence are hyper-visible these days. Right? And what I'm going to talk about, and, and Marsha this, this afternoon also spoke about this. So my question is, how does feminist theory then address these in the context of neoliberal and neocolonial empire? and nationalisms and transnationalisms of the today. So I want to turn in my talk today to thinking about the production of security and insecurity and the work that it does in the context of policing, militarization, and the production of what people have started to look at, these powerful transnational oligarchies, right? Um, and, and I think of them as sort of new emergences connecting with old, old formations of masculine patriarchal power, right? Um, I turn to a South Asian context of India in particular to ask these questions and to think especially about what's different about neoliberalism in different parts of the world, so in particular thinking about India as well. So let me begin. In recent years, mass protests emerged over two issues in India and have been widely covered by national and transnational news networks. First one, the second one I'm going to talk about first was the violence against women in 2012, and the one before that was about mass protests against corruption in 2011. The December 2012 rape of a young woman in Delhi mobilized protests demanding more safety for women from sexual assaults and more attention to rape cases from the police. The protest began just after rape, the rape became news with marches in the streets of several Indian street, cities. The police used tear gas and water cannons to disperse the protesters, probably because it was also the government and the police which was the chief target of the protests. It was an important uprising that came together because so many women were deeply angry that sexual violence constrained and controlled their lives and mobilities. After the death of the victim, who came to be called Nirbhaya, means the fearless one, the protests intensified and spread to many cities, and they incorporated a broad array of groups. Young women were especially visible, since youth are a large segment of the Indian population, and since they are often uh, targets not just of rape, but other forms of sexual violence in the streets. For many women were workers and students who knew how sexual violence regulates their mobility, the protests were important in changing the state laws and public opinion. The protesters called for expanding existing laws against rape, sought to make the police and courts accountable for registering complaints properly and prosecuting the rapists. For many protesters, the indifference of the state to everyday violence against women was the problem so that many of the demands were for more action by the state, by the police and the government. Some conservative commentators suggested it was the presence of migrant uh, and poor young men in the cities that was responsible for the violence, and that better policing would prevent such crimes. Such, alignments were, such arguments were in alignment with some right-wing conservative groups that demonized and targeted refugees and migrants in India. The government quickly appointed former Chief Justice, former Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Verma, to draft a document suggesting changes in the law. 
The committee received over 60,000 responses from groups and individuals, suggesting immense interest in the issue. The Verma Committee's report surprised everyone for how progressive it was, stating that rape and sexual assaults are not merely crimes of passion, but expression of power. It recommended that rape should be retained as a separate offense, and any non-consensual penetration of a sexual nature should be included in defining the crime. It also called for expanding criminal statutes to include marital rape, violence against sexual minorities, and rape by police and military. The three latter recommendations were left out when the Indian Parliament amended the Penal Code. The legislators also added the death penalty for repeat rapists, a change that was protested by feminist groups. Feminists argued that retributive justice was an expression of a masculine state violence which ignored the issue of women's safety and restored problematic ideologies of women's purity and of women as property. Um, in uh, property of males, but the government ignored these, enshrining the state as a patriarchal protector. It created more insecurity, especially for many groups who the state refused to protect by permitting sexual violence over wives, women in areas of state counterinsurgency, and sexual minorities. Though the rape had taken place in a private bus, this time the private sphere was not so much the target of protests. There was some criticism of family, patriarchy, but the protests also targeted the government and the police for their inability and unwillingness to deal with sexual violence. Though feminists had previously often targeted the patriarchal family in protests against rape, honor killings, previous uh, social movements around sexual violence, it was still noteworthy this time private violence was not the main issue, since it was stranger rape that galvanized the protest. And the protests did have an effect since they have led to greater willingness of women to report rape even within the family. So now there are reports in the newspaper when women speaking up about um, incest, for instance, or other forms of uh, sexual violence within the family. However, the aftermath has also been a rise in the notion of militarized protection and policing as remedies for sexual violence against women and a heightened sense of insecurity and anxiety among women. Pamela Philippos has argued that the media coverage of the protests used the brutality of the crime to enable a discourse of law and order as punishment, <coughs> with calls for chemical castration and death sentence as suitable forms of justice. While legislative reforms were helpful, there was little attention to the most pervasive use of rape to enforce the power of upper caste patriarchies. Though in recent decades, many Indians, especially upper middle class and upper caste ones, believe that India is a post-race society, rape remains a weapon of caste and gender violence. The woman at the center of this case in Delhi, near Bhaya, was not a Dalit or a tribal woman, nor did she belong to a minority group, nor was she a migrant or a refugee, although she was certainly not privileged either. The government amended laws, however, with a focus on masculine protection, heteronormative upper caste women as the paradigmatic victims of rape, and ignored the violence of the military or upper caste or sexual violence against sexual minorities. Such violence is perpetrated by men who claim themselves as heterosexual and uphold heteronormativity while being homophobic and transphobic. Testimony from a variety of sexual minorities in research studies, social movements, and recent court cases show that patriarchy also includes the right of sexual control and violence over bodies that are not female, which may belong to poor men, Dalits, transgender, 
transgenders and transsexual. Everyday violence regularly includes sexual assaults and rapes of sexual minorities. In such a context in which sexual violence remains part of the project of state security against insurgent movements and anti-terror projects and the prevention of sexual violence also produces violence and insecurity, social anxieties have become manifest within the family. But they're also manifest in this context of the liberalization of the economy. Thus, economic insecurity was the, was the issue around other protests in 2011, which culminated in the creation of a new political party in India called the Aam Admi, the common man. Though it seems as if every Indian or every South Asian rails against corruption, many commentators also noticed that the protests were another upper-caste movement, though it cut across classes and was brought about by concerns regarding the sliding economy and the privatization of public goods that benefited uh, powerful groups. It was also catalyzed by middle-class concerns for poor public welfare, weak support for business, and historical suspicion of bureaucracies and their rent-seeking. There was also an upper and middle class concern, especially by transnational corporate elites, that India was not going to overtake China in economic development. A competitive and neoliberal masculinist discourse in which national pride, GDP as the hallmark of prosperity, and corporate power were intermingled. The anti-corruption protests became a movement that created the male figure, the Aam Admi, the common man, as the paradigmatic subject, the victim of corruption, making economic disenfranchisement a masculine issue. This discourse of anti-corruption is not new to India. Since India's independence, the state's representatives, bureaucrats, and politicians have been regularly charged with corruption. And media has focused historically, for the most part, on the state and what it does. Though the intermittent anti-corruption purges and commissions don't seem to have not seemed to make a huge difference in the practices of power. William Gould has argued that the discourse of corruption in India has existed since the 1940s, and that colonial power produced a specific form in India. He sees Indian preoccupation with corruption as significant in its specificity because colonial power affected how it was defined and that the shift to independence heightened popular attention to corruption. Akhil Gupta's recent book, Red Tape, argues brilliantly that corruption narratives both reveal structural violence and also reveal people's relation to the state, while creating a heterogeneous and translocal state and emerging notions of accountability. While upper castes and classes are mobilizing against corruption, its effects always have been more dramatic on the lives of the poor and contributes also to their life chances. But corruption discourse also reveals how the discourse of power produces a masculine state and the upper caste male subject of economic insecurity as the victim of this corrupt state, even as there has been a shift since the 2011 protests that targeted state bureaucrat and politicians' collaborations with businesses and corporations. While women, as Sharman Gupta suggests, are instrumentalized as a paradigmatic figure around whom welfare programs are designed, they are at the same time denied goods and services. Gupta has suggested that including the poor in the, in the project of sovereignty becomes the alibi that enables the constitutive violence of state anti-poverty programs through retail corruption. 
At the same time as this woman is the alibi for these projects that enable bureaucracies, private groups, and NGOs to profit, she was not the subject of harm in the anti-corruption protest movements. These protests left out the issue of the gender of capital ownership and numerous ways in which gender differences in caste and class inequalities are produced. Legal scholar Flavia Agnes has argued that the problem of a patriarchal public and private collaboration is evident in the question of inheritance and property, ownership of capital, that has been left out of much activism or legislative reform in India. She states that this gap reveals the normative and violent power of upper castes and classes through the intertwined relation between gender, economy, development, and sexual violence. I would argue also that these intertwined relations constitute networks and collectivities of political, bureaucratic, corporate, and caste power that are now transnational rather than simply national. Because of these shifting elite forms of power and wealth, the predations of state functionaries become incorporated into the insecurities generated by a neoliberal project that includes public-private enterprises as a source of new extraction. The era of liberalization and opening up the Indian economy to global finance has now included privatization of public property, and that happens in many parts of the world, with attendant local insurgencies and state counterinsurgencies in Jharkhand, for instance, where tribal communities protesting that their land has been sold to mining companies has led to heavy militarization and violence, including militarized sexual violence to protect such privatization. In this aspect, India is similar to other places that were more state-centered economy where liberalization is properly also its neoliberalization. All this has happened quickly in the last few decades. Combining market enterprises, enclosure of public lands uh, with profits shared by political and corporate elites, entrepreneurial individuals as model citizens, and private corporations demanding protection and policing by the state. Much of the discussion of corruption and and the state in social science pays little attention to its gendered and sexualized nature. And sexual violence and corruption, as in the protests I mentioned, often seems unconnected. Um, And what remains also unconnected is the production of the intertwined sexual, social, and economic insecurity as important for new kinds of political economies. Misuse of power and sexual harassment, caste rapes remain outside the ambit of the term, but they're critical to the, to, the, to the collection of wealth production and the production of capital. Unless a sexual scandal involving a high-level official becomes the matter of public coverage, the everyday advantages of sexual transactions that are claimed by powerful males or groups escape media focus as forms of corruption, even though they are clearly visible in the circulating images of expensive homes, extravagant weddings, inheritances, advantages to children and relatives. Furthermore, the context of corruption remains mostly the state and its representatives, either politicians or bureaucrats. Because of the history of India, as a historical trajectory, and as a result of a neoliberal idea that private business, and this is widespread among India's upper classes, that private business is the engine of progress that will lift all boats. Such an ideology persists despite the fact that the Indian state has created massive welfare projects in the last decade or so. And it is the state that people still turn to for support. 
people may still hold public officials responsible for corruption, even though they've started to incorporate how private collaborations are also a problem. While sexual scandals erupt, as Rajesh Sundarajan has argued, to reveal the inability of the state to incorporate women as equal subjects, in recent years these scandals do not function as cases of corruption. That the corruption protests left out the work of these powerful oligarchies was made evident by smaller and less well-known protests by groups of women, Dalits, and Muslim and Christian groups who protested the anti-corruption movements for leaving out the violence that they experienced from the state and the disenfranchisement that they resulted. Dalit groups... Um, Dalit groups were also angry that a number of anti-corruption protesters also railed against the reservations, the affirmative action, uh, action uh, reservations for these groups and, thought, and targeted them as spheres of corruption. The icons of the protesters did not include those, fear, those revered by the Dalits, such as B.R. Ambedkar, the Dalit writer of the Indian Constitution. These groups protested that the corruption of upper caste power was not included in the protests. Indeed, the advantages of upper caste male privilege of this masculinity as a patriarchy with power over others and the ability to exert violence are highly desirable to many and often well known. These groups are not solely as several scholars have pointed out, national or local power groups, but include transnationally connected elites. While the dominant groups in this new India have come to include new kinds of entrepreneurs and transnational corporate executives, rather than the bureaucrats, industrialists, and politicians that were earlier the ruling elite, the making of hegemonic male elites collaborates between old, are collaborative between the older and the newer formations. And the social advantages are not simply in the realm of work or capital, but cross public and private divides as domestic and professional realms become continuous, and they've often been so, so the public and private divide doesn't make much sense either. While hegemonic masculinity has shifted from the figure of the lead bureaucrat and the manager to the transnational corporate executive, the power of older patriarchies does not go away. And just looking in this election cycle of the number of former police bureaucrats who are running for political office has been quite sobering. The production of these new collaborative patriarchies that cast compositions and use of traditional authorities such as police and military increases social and economic insecurity for many, especially among poor and historically stigmatized communities. In particular, this insecurity is critical for the new economies and for the work of media that pervades so much knowledge-making and makes visible some mass protests over others. If these protests separated the economic and the sexual, popular culture often shows them as intertwined. I want to turn now to examine some aspects of the Indian media landscape in which notions of corruption and sexual violence circulate as intertwined. But I want to do so through relying on cultural studies kind of analysis that suggests that popular culture produces desires, possibilities, resistances, and ideologies. Popular culture, as we know, is spectacularized power, but it does so in complex ways. Right? Insecurity is being produced as much as the notion of security. So 
just a um, transnational media reports that the anti-rape protests continued new attention to rape in India left out the fact that rape has a long media history. Some of the international media coverage of suggested that Delhi or India were places of exceptional sexual violence, claims that ignored the widespread forms of violence within the family and with everyday life, not just in India, but in places like the U.S. or the U.K., as Marsha was saying this morning. What they left out was that feminist groups have actively protested and publicized around rape, sexual violence, sexual harassment, and many other forms of violence. The Indian media did cover this history, also because the women's groups were part of the protests and were visible as active members in discussion and debates on television, and also because news coverage has become an important part of the sensationalized news on channels such as NDTV. Hindi cinema has a long history of attention to rape and corruption and has long represented these together because a cinematic spectacle makes visible the allure of the power of patriarchies that the new protest movements seem to divide. Since the 1970s, Hindi cinema has, rep- has represented the police smugglers in the era of before economic liberalization that was critical and corrupt officials as villains. In these productions, sexual violence was represented as, as intertwined with corruption, intrinsic to its pleasures. The rise of Amitav Bachchan to superstardom is part of this shift, as a hero was both police and outlaw here in his police officer clothing, battled corrupt police, politicians, businessmen, landlords, taking on the oligarchies, local and national, but battling them in the name of a national masculinity and a national pedagogy. The shift from the homespun nationalist masculinity, which Sanjay Srivastava calls the five-year plan hero of the era of the five-year plans, um, uh, from the 1960s to Bachchan's angry young man uh, figure whose vigilantism signals, as one scholar puts it, an alienation from both the state and the bazaar, Jane points to... Kajri Jain points to a mimetic relay between the hero and the urban young man, the way in which many young men copied, uh, especially Bachchan's affect, as well as the camera's focus on his body and his buddies, which queer study scholars have emphasized. In recent decades, TV and cinema have moved even more heavily to sensationalize news coverage of sexual violence in television. In particular, the television crime series has become incredibly popular. Crime dramas on TV began to be popular in the early years of this last decade and have continued to be popular with titles like Halabol, Shout Out, CID, Crime Patrol, this one, Gumrah, Police Files, Shaitan, Adalat, Savdhan, Watch Out India, Colors, India's Most Wanted, in Hindi television, and many other languages. These shows often claim to be based on real-life cases, with some solely focused on crime against women. Crimes such as cyber stalking or love crimes, as they call it, are extremely popular. And many of these also show police as bumbling and inept, suggesting desire for law and order as well as concern for its failures. The show Crime Patrol, for instance, is, claims it's based on real crimes. It shoots on location and included one episode on the December 2012 rape. However, like other such shows, highly stylized with practices of representation that include shooting on location, violence against women, heterosexual women as victims, and recreations of the pain and the suffering and the crime. 
Police detective and protectors and perpetrators are heterosexual males, producing thus the logic of a heteronormative patriarchy and its power, but also concerns about its power as well. Given such shows and corporate representations of violence against women are not themselves violent, they continue the widespread representation of rape in the history of Bombay cinema. Shows such as CID with a tagline of its main character that says, Ab to fancy, ab to fancy hogi, now you will be hung. It's a tagline. Suggests that some of what went on in the 2012 protest calls for capital punishment reveals the mediator's anxieties and closures of retributive justice so prevalent in popular media. And this is uh, the Kiran Baby, uh, this. There she is. Is is called, um, you know, she's known as a super cop, and she's um, a woman, policewoman, who rose to a very high rank. Um, she introduced yoga in the jails. She she worked to clean up the the biggest jail in Delhi. She's supposed to be incorruptible. She was part of also the the movements, protest <coughs> movements as well. And she supports this show called Savdhan. means watch out, be careful in India. So she feels, and, and the kind of reality, the, the ways in which these shows are supposed to be connected to the experiences of people is really critical uh, to think about here. The producers of these shows, mostly males, have argued in the press that these shows teach young women to be careful with one producer even saying he would like his 10-year-old daughter to see his show to learn how to be careful. So in this, the best gift we can give to our viewers is to equip them with knowledge of how to safeguard themselves, that the shows themselves are pedagogical. Um, Anup Soni, the... Is this guy? Um, controls the narrative of Crime Patrol, this particular show, to point out how risk, accountability, corruption, and crime are intertwined. His narrative focuses often on how important it is to bring criminals to justice for the safety and future of ordinary people and the corruption of uncaring policemen. With a number of the shows focused on crimes against women, it also includes crimes of insurance, property, malfeasance. And many of these follow the tropes of the common man who take the law into his own hands to enable justice. Sexual violence and other forms of corruption are intertwined. In one episode, on a hidden run by a truck driver, we are told that the driver not only murdered two young men, but one of them who was killed was intending to join the Indian Army and wanted to uh, serve his nation. But the truck driver who was a murderer was also seen to have, was also, uh, we understand from the show, was one who was abusive to his wife and in fact had murdered her as well. In these shows, a state is inept and, uh, and ordinary people are often victimized. They draw large male audiences in contrast to the more family dramas watched mostly by women in the evenings. In generating these audiences, the creation and spirit of sexual panics and insecurity is highly popular and lucrative. So sexting, for instance, sending pictures on, um, across cell phones uh, is, is, a, is sort of creates some of these moral panics and brings together sexual violence as pedagogy pleasure and more recently, public service humanitarianism in September 2013, MTV India launched a show called MTV, 
TV webbed, which according to one report has been created in collaboration with an NGO, and we'll quote from their website, focus on creating awareness about the cyber abuse cases, highlighting the increasing rate of cyber crime. End quote. MTV India has partnered with Cyber Crime Awareness Society, another NGO, to create the series and is being produced under the MTV's global social responsibility platform, MTV Act. Other shows have followed this trend, purporting to teach viewers how to deal with the crimes while generating fear and anxiety about crime and blaming the victims. But lest these shows be seen as simply an Indian phenomenon, the popularity of the police procedural crime drama in U.S. and British television, in which the crime du jour is the sexual rape and murder of a woman, is also part of a very powerful transnational media industry. And you notice that the shows in India, not only the Indian shows, but they show Dexter, Castle, Criminal Mind, Person of Interest, all of these shows are also screened uh, uh, every day. Contemporary U.S. crime shows are broadcast throughout India through multinational television corporations. I don't wish to argue, certainly, that media is the cause of the rapes or the sexual violence or the source of it, but it certainly, I think, produces viewers for whom rape exists in visual, affective, and material ways, a complex of differential audiences, receptions, desires, and the production of transnational and contemporary consumer culture. So they're connected news, books, movies, television, uh, etc., all connected, through which the victimized body is the feminized female subject of multiple and numerous screens, small and large. Sexual violence is ubiquitous as entertainment, producing anxiety, fears, and insecurities, depending on the gender and sexuality of the viewer, the choices made by producers and writers who know how the mix of pleasure and insecurity is productive in, in many ways. This anxiety both displays but makes hypertrophic the violence of masculine power that extends from the public to the private realm, controlling family, polity, mobility, and security in the interests of security and production. Radha Hegde has shown how, for instance, the problem of sexual violence against call center workers in Bangalore uh, led to calls for restricting women's working hours, concerns about their night work in call center, as well as ideas about their sexual availability. The state response to sexual violence is more policing via the state and many technologies of surveillance um, and the production of the gun, a special gun for women, reveals the continuities between the colonial state that pioneered the use of fingerprinting and criminalizing the pol- and the post-colonial state in which the police remains quite unchanged from colonial times and much of a structure and approach to law and order. Anti-terrorism, anti-corruption, anti-sexual violence, all of these projects of security have come to enhance policing via both colonial and new technologies and representations through media industries. Even the notion of development has now become neoliberal, split between the making of infrastructures to support a globalizing economy and the need to reduce poverty for millions. But neoliberalism in India has its specificities as well as its transnational connections. Unlike the context of neoliberalism in other places, welfare in India has not been reduced. Indeed, the ruling parties know that welfare is the road to votes. So the government has increased schemes and programs for welfare. They're responding to the demands of different groups who wish to access the state and get its support. These groups are not quiet, and the protests and insurgencies in India show that demands for the welfare state have not subsided, nor have they been forgotten. 
But development and securitization have also become intertwined, evident in, for instance, the claims that the new biometric ID program in India, Aadhaar, will prevent corruption and directly provide welfare to the poorest of women. High-tech solutions and the expenditures of these provide, um, produce new collaborations for extracting profits on the pretext of support for the poor. The figure of the poor woman enables new forms of profit via technologies and ideologies of high-tech efficiency and transparency. I want to end today, so then, with the question of the relation quickly between the security state and neoliberalism, a debate that has much to do with questions of economic and sexual violence and power. I've argued that neoliberalism has both specific collaborations and some more transnational ones. It's not often the same everywhere, depending on the historical trajectory of the state. The specificity of Indian neoliberalism lies in the context of demands for efficiency and transparency against a history of discourses of corruption of state bureaucracies that have foundations in the colonial state. Unlike Western countries, India did not move from a liberal market economy to a neoliberal one. Rather, it went from a controlled economy of a state that was seen to be inefficient and corrupt, but hopeful and somewhat socialistic, to economic liberalization that was to be efficient by harnessing the entrepreneurial capacities of its citizens. While corruption protests signal the failures of the state and what is called globalization to reduce economic insecurity, the protests against sexual violence reveal how this project has created uprising against the traditional authorities, the state, and those who embody it. A final point about neoliberalism as loss. Jody Dean points out we cannot assume that the present is about the loss of democratic formations that we had in the past. This so-called post-political moment, as Zizek has called it, um, all assumes a prior democracy or a prior liberalism. But the question also is whose liberal rights have been lost? The Dalits and who were protesting the corruption marches certainly did not think so. In contradiction to the belief that the neoliberalism means the decline of what is seen as traditional authority, right, the neoliberal patriarchy requires these traditional authorities to police and secure the new ones against the protests of people who wish to get something from the welfare from the liberal state. They wish for this, uh, the kind of liberalism that they never receive. Right. Security is a different, a difficult concept because it's multifaceted. Its relations, as Michel Foucault has pointed out, are to welfare on the one hand and regulation on the other. It's also intimately related to militarization and violence, both by the state and within the so-called private sphere of community and family. But the equation between the two, between those who demand security and those whose demands register, and those whose security, insecurity is used for economic gain are specific. The security welfare couple does not mean that in places like India, welfare has lost. In some ways, it remains the same. It's even increased in some ways. As the fears required and engendered by security have a political economy in which risks and insurance circulate via media and cultural industry, security is commoditized in ways that link welfare and militarism. Such securities circulate across multiple boundaries, institutions. They create subjects, commodities, and gain value from those circulations. Thank you. And to time. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and now to move seamlessly on to, to Professor Chanceway. Can everyone hear me? Is that okay at the back? Yeah, okay. Um, so, um, absolutely delighted to be here tonight. Um, very, very excited indeed to be sharing the platform with uh, Indapal Graywell, who's, who's one of these iconic figures in uh, gender studies, and it's wonderful to meet you at long last. Um, Indapal, this is a little joke, Indapal included a chapter um, in her book by me, and I only discovered it on the net, and very kindly sent me a copy of the book um, afterwards, uh, which I was very grateful for. Um, I should also say how happy I am that so many of you are here tonight, especially on a Friday evening, um, and uh, it's really glorious to see so many, um, not only current students, but also past students, doctoral uh, masters and otherwise, and future uh, doctoral students as well, um, and of course some very dear uh, friends from the so-called GAD uh, community. Um, just over 20 years ago, um, I was a handful of gender specialists, uh, one of a handful of gender specialists, not a handful in my own right, um, at the LSE, <laughs> and uh, very pleased to uh, be part of a, a small group headed up by uh, Henrietta Moore and Derek Diamond and Hazel Johnson, uh, which saw the launch of our now virtually unrecognisable uh, Gender Institute, the only enduring presence, in fact, being Hazel Johnson, uh, recently and most deservedly honoured uh, with an MBE who steered us through an incredible expansion in permanent staff numbers, in PhD students and in terms of uh, MSc programmes. Uh, during the space of these last 20 years, gender has uh, secured a very solid intellectual and institutional space, not only at LSE, but in the academy more generally. And when I think about when I started out doing my PhD in the early 1980s, this was virtually unthinkable. At the beginning of the 1980s, uh, GAD, uh, or Gender and Development, was a subject in its infancy, just finding its feet. But thanks to the persistence of key researchers and advocates who remain active well into their relatively recent so-called official retirement, Lourdes Benaria, Diane Elson, Nancy Folbray, Ruth Pearson, who's here tonight, uh, Annie Whitehead, who's also here and I hope will stay uh, a little, um, and Maxine Molyneux, Caroline Moser, who's also here, uh, and Jane Papart, uh, to name but a few. And, of course, uh, beyond this, we have new generations of new GAD scholars which have emerged, and as with gender studies in general, enlarged and enriched the field beyond recognition. Among many of the things I've really appreciated um, as I've effectively grown up in and as part of uh, the new academic sub-discipline of gender and development 
are, first of all, the concern of the vast bulk of GAG scholars to undertake applied research. In other words, the kind of research that lends itself to informing policy and practice. Uh, a second uh, major um, uh, positive from my point of view is the commitment of GAD, many GAD scholars to do field work and to take their cues, ideas and theoretical constructions from encounters and engagements at the grassroots. The healthy level of debate around the dangers of overgeneralisation is a third uh, main positive uh, of gender and development, including the critique of concepts which may have helped put gender on the policy agenda but which can have deeply problematic, theoretical, political and practical consequences. Indeed, in 2003, Andrea Cornwall, Annie Whitehead and Buzz Harrison at IDS uh, convened a huge international conference entitled Gender Myths and Feminist Fables, aimed precisely to take stock of the institutionalisation of gender and development, and as part and parcel of this, to problematise some of the buzzwords and uh, also fuzzwords that had entered the GAD lexicon over the years, and female empowerment uh, was one of them. The feminisation of poverty also belonged to this hit list of troubled buzzwords, conventional wisdoms and truisms, um, and which will lead me in the bulk of my talk tonight to a brief resume of how this came into the GAD vocabulary, analysis and policy, and what I feel its major shortcomings were, and indeed are, because despite a huge body of research to which I hope I've made some contribution, the feminisation of poverty remains very much a vague and unsubstantiated uh, concept in which I feel that the overemphasis on income poverty, albeit often more implicit than explicit, is somewhat misplaced. And not only this, but I've been wondering, and I haven't got beyond wondering, I'm afraid, because I haven't had much time recently, I've been wondering whether the prioritisation of income poverty may, albeit in possibly paradoxical ways, have had a certain functionality in respect of helping to justify the ever more visible, efficiency-orientated, smart economics agenda, which has been so much in evidence in GAD uh, policy circles in the last decade, and firmly embedded, of course, in the World Bank's 2012 World Development Report on Gender Equality and Development, despite considerable uh, rhetorical reference uh, to rights too, as evidenced uh, in uh, this slide, which contains uh, some uh, choice pickings uh, from WDR uh, 2012. And what you might like to note here is what I've called in a paper I wrote for Global so Social Policy, clever conflations, where the linking of smart economics and reference to women's rights in the self-same sentence suggests a deep symbiosis. Now, of course, this instrumentalising efficiency approach goes back a long way, even prior to the feminisation of poverty as global orthodoxy, perhaps. Um, Caroline Moser uh, famously uh, described an encroaching instrumentalism uh, in uh, uh, GAD uh, policy during the so-called lost decade of the 1980s as recognition mounted of the role played by poor women's efforts in cushioning household livelihoods in the wake of uh, economic crisis and neoliberal restructuring. And then in 1995, the World Bank's flagship publication for the Fourth Women's World Conference in Beijing made explicit reference would you believe, to the payoffs of investing uh, in women, and a choice quote there. Now, not only did the bank continue uh, stepping up the business case for investing in women with its Gender Action Plan 2007-10, 
being subtitled Gender Equality as Smart Economics, but a host of other agencies, including not only multilaterals, bilaterals and NGOs, but corporates, um, and here uh, Interpel's uh, talk is extremely relevant, accountancy firms and the like, have also jumped on the bandwagon, which is not actually surprising, given the bank's intimate connections with major investment banks such as Goldman Sachs, as documented with a very fine tooth comb by Adrian Roberts and Suzanne Soderberg in their 2012 article in Third World Quarterly. So we've had something then of a globalisation of smart uh, economics, uh, the dividends of gender equality and so forth, and a little bit disappointing as far as I'm concerned is the UN also now on the smart economics uh, bandwagon. Now, the new, the, the, sorry, the new smart economics corporate-infused agenda is somewhat hydra-headed, of course, with the likes of Adrian Roberts and Juanita Elias, amongst others, pointing out that its business case for investing in women um, comprises rationales ranging from women and girls being an untapped resource to representing value for money, and from the standpoint of essentialist ideas concerning not only altruistic but risk-averse female behaviours, uh, um, uh, which are all critical, of course, to humanise, normalise and maintain neoliberalism in our wonderful 21st century global order. Now, the main solution to redressing gender inequality and poverty, of course, is to incorporate women in markets as workers, as consumers, as clients for credit, as if these markets are gender-neutral spaces. In this scenario, it's arguably conceivable that the feminisation of poverty, as conventionally constructed, helps to play an important additional legitimising role. I, women are poor, so what do we do? We try and make them richer, regardless of the terms. And, of course, those terms now involve much less public support for reproduction uh, in most countries of the world. Now, I hope to return to these points later, but in the meantime, I want to go back to the feminisation of poverty, in which I first became interested during the 1980s and 1990s in the context of research, initially in Mexico and subsequently in Costa Rica and the Philippines, with uh, Kathy McElwain and Sarah Bradshaw in Costa Rica and Kathy McElwain in the Philippines. But it wasn't until the early 2000s, by which time I'd also embarked on fieldwork in the Gambia, that I took issue with the concept of the feminisation of poverty head-on. This dedicated look was enabled by a three-year Leverhulme major research fellowship, thank you Leverhulme, um, which gave me time for extensive fieldwork in three countries. I hope I might have a, a second stab at one of these uh, in, in, in um, subsequent years. Um, and I will be going into um, uh, the fieldwork I did for this project uh, uh, a little later. But first of all, I just want to emphasise that one of the major preoccupations with my Leverhulme project uh, was to explore the extent to which a term which was being banded about as something of a global south, if not global orthodoxy, um, actually uh, was actually tenable in three very different developing countries and could thus stand up to the generalised status it seemed to be enjoying in academic and policy circles. Now, I'd long had my doubts about one of the feminisation of poverty's main connotations, which is somehow the increase in poverty is associated with a feminisation of household headship. However, I also had difficulty getting to grips with the idea that poverty was continuing to undergo feminisation, 
in light of some narrowing of gender gaps, for example, in education and employment. This appeared counterintuitive to me. How could poverty be feminising in general terms if actually gaps were beginning to close uh, between women uh, and men in younger generations? So was the feminisation of poverty something to do with uh, demographic ageing and the progressive concentration of um, uh, women at uh, uh, older stages uh, of the life cycle? So that's why I built in a perspective on generation into the research as well. So what did the fieldwork uh, entail? Well, um, the statistical data we have available uh, on gendered poverty is actually notoriously poor. Um, so uh, despite uh, digging out whatever I could, which was particularly difficult in the context of the Gambia, um, most of this research actually involved the generation of qualitative data through focus group discussions, through individual uh, interviews with women and men from the grassroots, uh, over 220 of them, and also I held about 40 uh, consultations with so-called uh, key informants or institutional personnel in NGOs, state agencies and uh, international uh, development um, organisations. Now, I'll come back to the fieldwork and my main conclusions from this in a moment, but I think it's important in the first instance to provide a little background to the feminisation of poverty and its meteoric rise to global orthodoxy um, uh, around 20 or so years ago. It's not just the Gender Institute that's celebrating its 20 years, but the feminisation of poverty too. Now, the feminisation of poverty was actually first coined by the sociologist uh, Diana Pierce in the late 1970s in relation to her USA-specific work on on race, gender, and households in the USA. Um, but the feminization of poverty assumed a decidedly global uh, character at the Fourth World Women's Conference at Beijing in 1995, which I know several people here uh, attended, when it was famously pronounced, and I think it was Inga now at the UNDP, uh, that women were 70% of the world's poor and rising. Now, this figure of 70%, I think, was very much spirited out of the ether. Certainly, uh, the likes of Alan Marcoux and Stefan Klassen have actually said this was an empirical impossibility from the word go. Um, but uh, effectively, the feminization of poverty was taken as read and then became one of the, base, the bases of one of the 12 um, uh, strategic priorities uh, of the Beijing Platform for Action, which was to eradicate the persistent and increasing poverty of poverty on women. Now, at one level, this was extremely positive. The feminisation of poverty was a neat, headline-grabbing slogan, something which Maxine Molyneux has referred to um, with her characteristic eloquence as a pithy, if polivalent phrase that certainly seemed to get gender on the agenda post-Beijing if we think about the Poverty Reduction Strategy Papers, the Millennium Development Goals, and the decided feminisation of anti-poverty initiatives such as micro-credit schemes and conditional cash transfer programmes. But scratching a little below the surface, and quite aside from the dubious statistical claims about a feminisation of poverty, it could be challenged that this widely used term is something of an empty vessel. Although the feminisation of poverty may seem to have a superficial self-evidence, we know, for example, that women are less than men, uh, they're disadvantaged in respect of land and property, 
But in the extensive trawl of academic and policy literature, which I conducted for the Levy Hume Project, and actually make it my business to continue with this, um, the majority of studies still do not specify what they mean by the term, and if they do, there are three preponderant uh, connotations. First of all, that the incidence of poverty is greater among women than men, this whole idea that poverty has a female face, very emotive uh, statement that the incidence of poverty among women relative to men is growing over time, and thirdly, and very problematically, that the uh, rising relative incidence of poverty among women is linked with increases in female household headship, who are commonly uh, typecast as the poorest of the poor. Now, I don't want to come over as being unduly semantic, but you could immediately take issue with the first of these tenets. Even if women are poorer than men, Feminization is an active word implying process rather than state, as Marcelo Marderas and Joanna Costa, amongst others, have emphasized. Indeed, women could still be disproportionately represented among the poor, even if poverty had been masculinizing over a given period. Another very interesting issue is how, despite the assertion back in 1995 that women were 70% of the world's poor and rising, there has been no sign of any upward revision in this time, whether in the form of estimates or indeed guesstimates. Still, between 60 to 70% of the world's poor are female, as indicated um, uh, by uh, various uh, statements plucked out of... Um, and I hope that I'm not offending anyone here, because uh, uh, I know some of you are deeply involved with the Gender and Development uh, Network. So maybe no one wants to challenge these figures because they've clearly served a purpose, namely to place women and gender uh, firmly on the agenda, albeit in the context of a problematic and rather unholy trinity between poverty alleviation, gender equality stroke women's empowerment, one and the same thing, of course, um, and uh, economic growth, what uh, a German uh, sociologist called Berta Rodenberg um, has described as a win-win scenario. Now, I'll return to the policy angle later, but I think it's just worth reminding ourselves here of just how important uh, this catching on of the feminisation of poverty has been uh, in policy terms. And I won't bother to read these out because I, I'm aware of uh, time uh, absolutely racing past. And Sumi's vigorously nodding there and making me feel very, very nervous indeed. I've only got 60 pages to go, folks, so we should be fine. Uh, anyway, so... Um, Though, so all these uh, marching calls for the uh, feminisation of property. Now, I hate to be self-referential. I quite like it when my students refer to me, but I don't really like to uh, blow my own trumpet, but I do love this quote. And uh, so here... <laughs> In relation to the mounting range of policy interventions aimed at women's economic empowerment, oh, I love it, the astoundingly <laughs> rapid translation of the feminisation of poverty from opportunistic shorthand to established fact has ostensibly been fortuitous, OK? But I think there are problems too. Um, first of all, I think we need to think about, in general terms, about what kinds of policy interventions have come out of the feminisation of poverty and the very problematic discursive framing of women as victims. But I have some more specific concerns too. The first is the implicit emphasis in the feminisation of poverty on income, and secondly, the more explicit emphasis on female-headed households. And actually, as an additional aside, which I just thought about, Data are always deplored as inadequate. We don't have enough data. We certainly don't have enough data on gender poverty. But 
Regardless of that, we can make some very categorical and confident uh, uh, statements about justifying particular kinds of interventions. For example, if the ratio of female to male workers in India increased by just 10%, the country's GDP would increase by 8%. I don't know whether Interpol can uh, uh, comment on that uh, later. But, uh, you know, we we don't have the data. Uh, But, you know, we're very happy to bandy it around. Okay, so what other concerns do I have? Well, the concerns I have, um, first of all, uh, on income is the way in which there are several other aspects of poverty beyond income uh, which um, perhaps are more suggestive and more informative in terms of understanding gendered privation, land and property, decision-making power, legal rights and the like. And summed up very nicely in that quote by Roddenberg again uh, that um, women are disproportionate these circumstances clearly indicate that the fact women are disproportionately affected by poverty is neither due primarily to lower incomes nor finds its sole uh, expression uh, in them. Could it be that the privileging of income diverts attention from other factors more pertinent to gender disadvantage? And to what degree does this focus on income encourage relatively simplistic market uh, led responses, so better integrate women into the economy as is, rather than directing efforts to overhauling deeply gendered social, political and legal as well as economic structures. So moving on from this, a second set of concerns I have with income are of a more methodological nature. I'm not going to go through this in any detail, but I think, although economists often tell us that routine money metric assessments of poverty um, are more robust than assessments based on more qualitative, holistic and subjective approaches, Um, collecting data on incomes and consumption is by no means straightforward, especially when it comes to gender. How reliable are income data when women may not know how much their husbands earn or where men fail to make honest disclosures about their wages or expenditure if consulted in front of wives? And of course, by vice versa too. But if there's one thing I've learned from well over 30 years of field research in four developing countries, people tend to be very secretive, if not cagey about money, will understate or overstate their predicament, depending on who is asking the questions, the perceived impacts of the answers, and complex issues around self-representation. Another deeply problematic uh, issue with income is that we often only have this available at the household level, which tells us absolutely nothing about those critical intra-domestic resource flows, which are often absolutely central to uh, gendered poverty. We've also got a lack of data to support the case. Latin America and the Caribbean is the only continent or region for which we actually have reasonably reliable uh, data uh, which is sex disaggregated uh, in relation uh, to income and of course that doesn't go back very far uh, at all. Okay um, and then a second set of concerns then is around the emphasis on female headed households in the feminisation of poverty and lo and behold here we have uh, a few more categorical uh, assumptions. Uh, Households headed by females with dependent children experience the worst afflictions of poverty. Female headed households are the poorest. Now everyone just quotes everyone else here okay, without really interrogating the data. Myself excluded of course. (laughs) Um, So um, uh, of course when we uh, have uh, income data available at the household level we ignore those secondary uh, poverty uh, elements uh, which relate to uh, domestic uh, gender relations. 
We also have a neglect of agency choice and trade-offs. Nyla Kabir and myself, amongst others, have um, uh, talked about this notion of trade-offs, which speaks to women making tactical choices between different dimensions of poverty in the interests of personal or household well-being. For example, being without a male partner and their earnings may at one level place female heads at greater risk of poverty, especially in terms of income. But this can be compensated by other gains, such as women exerting more control over resource allocation, avoiding the vulnerability attached to erratic support from their partners, um, or indeed simply enjoying a greater sense of well-being because their lives are freer from conflict, coercion or violence. So while, as Nyla Kabir has put it, choice of trade-offs may be limited, and as Maxi Molyneux has described, the price of women's independence may be high. In the context of lone mothers who form a major group of female-headed households, uh, Hilary Graham way back argued single parenthood can represent not only a different but a preferable kind of poverty. And of course here we also have to acknowledge that female-headed households don't come in just one shape and size. Uh, single parent households might actually be a big group of female-headed households, but they are amazingly uh, heterogeneous as an entity uh, for all uh, some of those uh, reasons uh, listed there. And last but not least, I'd just like to think about what the feminisation of poverty leaves out. First of all, our obsession with looking at female household heads means that we've perhaps blinded ourselves to other criteria which might be very important in helping to uh, analyse uh, 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 gendered poverty, uh, particularly uh, age, as I identified earlier. I think that the nomenclature feminisation of poverty tends to divert our attention just to women and leave men out of the equation. And I think there's a very big issue here. If there is a feminisation of poverty going on, does this mean there is a counterpart masculinisation of wealth? And if so, how so, especially in the context of, I know it's another problematic truism, a, an encroaching crisis of masculinity. That's another lecture. Um, so, um, and then uh, last but not least, I'd just like to emphasise as well uh, that um, the uh, preoccupation with income has uh, actually given us a very myopic uh, view of the feminisation of poverty and really at the end of the day I think we need to be looking uh, at privations in a more rounded way and particularly looking at the inputs to household survival and people's responsibilities uh, and rights within households. So I've um, made an attempt, I suppose, to reframe the feminisation of poverty as it's conventionally uh, constructed um, and um, I've come up with this lovely an incredibly cumbersome term, uh, a feminisation of responsibility and obligation. And in case we don't have time, although, how many minutes have I got? Uh, you have some time. Okay, that's jolly good. Right, okay, so uh, this is in brief, in case we don't get to the, uh, the individual elements. First of all, and this is what I've observed on the basis of my field work in uh, various countries, particularly uh, Gambia, Philippines and Costa Rica, First of all, there appears to be a, a growing uh, disparity in gender terms in the range and amounts of inputs to household livelihoods. Effectively, women injecting more effort over time, uh, men uh, even uh, slightly withdrawing. Secondly, there seem to be persistent gender inequalities in the ability to negotiate obligations and entitlements in households. There is a growing weight of responsibility on women which they have little option other than to assume. So I've actually subtitled this No Power to Choose. And then last but not least, there appears to be a growing juncture between gendered investments, uh, responsibilities and rewards. 
and rights. Okay, so I thought I'd bring in uh, a few respondents at this stage because they, uh, uh, without them, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to come to any of these conclusions. Um, and the, there's some just uh, very interesting quotes here from women. Um, wouldn't uh, perhaps like to uh, draw attention here to um, uh, Araceli's statement that all men really want for a wife is an empleada, which in the context of, uh, Costa, context of Costa Rica means a domestic servant, someone who will do everything for them. So it's not that, just that women are actually uh, seem to be injecting more labour, uh, both paid and unpaid, but they also seem to be um, performing that labour in very gender-stereotyped ways, in ways which effectively service men and don't really depart from uh, 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 that... Um, uh, 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 gender-divided uh, scenario. Um, there are many people who've argued, of course, that, um, that uh, um, men are not uh, stepping up uh, their efforts into reproductive activities uh, in many parts of the world. I think Nyla found this with her um, wonderful uh, IDS paper on motherhood, masculinity and the global economy. There is some isolated evidence from countries such as Chile and Mexico by the likes of Matthew Goodman, for example, um, which talks about uh, men stepping up their involvement in caring for children. But this tends to be mainly a middle-class uh, phenomenon and not so much at the grassroots, with the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean there uh, talking about uh, that um, uh, male-headed households uh, are likely to enjoy the advantages of free domestic work by the spouse. Now, I don't want to exclude men from the picture here, and I think actually it's very interesting uh, that my male respondents uh, seem to have very similar views to the women. It's not as if there's radically different uh, interpretations, but one thing that comes through very, very strongly from the male respondents uh, is the way in which uh, effectively reproductive labour you're not going to write me a note. No, no, uh, right, uh, reproductive labour uh, is uh, still fundamentally a, a, a woman's domain. Uh, Ali, you, 24, hey, I'm a man here in this country, the cooking, the cleaning and all of that, that is the job of the women. And I thought it was very, very interesting when I was actually doing the analysis for this research um, of, of the field notes was that in a way you could have actually swapped around the names and the countries and the ages. There was, seemed to be so much um, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, consistency, if you like, between the countries, and similarly with the women's quotes. I think there may be a beacon of hope here. Alfredo says that although women are weak in temptation, they are good in planning things, so we've got something to go on there. Um, and uh, interestingly from Guillermo, uh, there is still machismo, uh, and there are sometimes men who don't help in the house, even if they're not working. I think that if you're not doing anything, you should should help to cook and clean, but if you're working, well, that's another matter. Uh, so basically, as long as you can uphold your normative uh, duty as breadwinner, then you don't really need to help around uh, the home. Okay, uh, so um, that's labour. And uh, also, I would say that there's a growing unevenness in terms of inputs of uh, income into uh, households. And uh, Tida's quote here is very illustrative. She's a, a fruit seller in the Gambia. Men are not doing anything. If they pay for the breakfast, it's the women who pay for the lunch and the dinner. Women pay for the school lunches. You see the festivals. And it's the women who are selling. Some men are not working, and some men refuse to work. Or if they work, they don't do it for the family. Um, and uh, again, uh, seems to be uh, remarkably uh, consistent. And uh, effectively, uh, what I want to uh, emphasise here as well is that um, as women's 
uh, inputs to household incomes increase with their greater labour force involvement, sometimes this is simply used by men as an excuse to actually withhold more of their earnings. So this strikes me as something of a lose-lose scenario. uh, and uh, basically, uh, women don't have much choice in the matter here. This is why I've called this no power to choose. Uh, basically, uh, they seem to be very much on the front line of dealing with daily hardship. And when things get really, really tough, then men just absent themselves. They might absent themselves, spend time with their friends uh, or whatever. As Naima says here from the Gambia, if there's a problem and the children go hungry, men just put on their kaftan and go out. Well, thank God they're putting on their kaftan. Um, But women uh, have to stay behind uh, to answer uh, their children's needs. Okay, and um, uh, also, um, I don't want to pathologise men. I never have wanted to pathologise men. But it is undeniable uh, that men do engage in a a variety of socialising activities uh, with their own sex, which often are based around, you know, drinking uh, and so on. And I think we need to remember uh, that that can actually have short, long-term as well as short-term implications for household well-being. Uh, Satu here in the Gambia says, if you're a woman, you always have to think about having to spend it, money, on everyone else, but men will just use any surplus income uh, to secure a second wife. Now, in the Gambia, that's a very real threat because, of course, we have legal polygamy. Uh, But I would also say it's also a threat in the Philippines and Costa Rica where polygyny uh, is also uh, common. Um, I think it's very interesting here the way in which uh, Abdias, a 14-year-old boy in Costa Rica, uh, highlights another uh, sort of lose-lose scenario, uh, pointing out that men with money are more unfaithful than men without money. But if a poor man gets together with a woman who lives well, he will leave his wife and children to have an easier life. Don't really see how you can uh, get out of that situation uh, with that kind of uh, idea. And uh, basically, uh, all of this uh, uh, division, all these divisions of labour and all these injustices, uh, very much um, uh, in practical terms, but also discursively, and the particular discourse of female altruism and male uh, egoism uh, coming uh, through. You might ask, why do women put up with these injustices? And in fact, I remember uh, some very interesting uh, Balkany conversations with Cathy McElwain uh, in the Philippines, thinking, why do women uh, put up with this? Um, And I'm afraid I still don't have the answer. Uh, But I've offered uh, some uh, uh, suggestions here. And I think one of the the big... uh, issues, really, is that uh, in a situation of uh, increasing precarity, men are perhaps trying to hang on uh, to uh, sort of traditional markers of masculinity over which they still have some control, like going out with the boys, etc., uh, etc. Et and of course, women as well, often buying into those stereotypes. I did come across one woman who said that although her husband was unemployed, she made him go out uh, because she, couldn't, she didn't want him around during the day. It just got in the way. Um, So, um, uh, this all highlights, uh, I think, very nicely uh, Annie Whitehead's much-quoted citation here that men and women are often poor for different reasons, experience poverty differently, and have different capacities to withstand uh, or escape uh, poverty. And my last uh, major element with this feminisation of responsibility and obligation is uh, the growing disjuncture between gendered responsibilities and rights. Um, As women's responsibilities for household livelihoods increase, this does not seem to be being matched 
by a commensurate increase in men's uh, inputs uh, or indeed in women's personal well-being, agency and freedoms. And I feel that this mismatch between inputs and outcomes is actually leading to a greater uh, exploitation uh, of women. And I would also argue that the exploitation of women seems to be greater in male-headed households rather than female-headed households, which makes me wonder, have we got the focus uh, wrong? And although I don't want to kind of engage in counter-stereotypes, I would definitely argue uh, that female-headed households in many ways can be enabling uh, spaces with all sorts of knock-on effects uh, for uh, 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 gendered flexibilities in subsequent uh, generations. So, returning briefly then now to the context of the policy impacts of the feminisation of poverty, the feminisation of poverty is perhaps something of a Pyrrhic uh, victory. We have this win-win formula now, where if you uh, uh, increase gender equality or empower women, you will also uh, be able to achieve poverty reduction and economic growth, and all these things work together in a wonderful, virtuous circle. Um, we could certainly think about the fact that probably the feminisation of poverty has uh, guaranteed more resources uh, for uh, gender interventions than any other single issue um, uh, in, in, in the history of uh, GAD. But, we, of course, we also have to remember uh, that poverty reduction and uh, gender, uh, reducing uh, gender inequality are not one and the same. Uh, poverty is one thing, uh, gender is another, despite their frequent uh, intersections. And I think it's also important to identify uh, that there are often very different interests on the part of stakeholders primarily interested in poverty reduction and those who are primarily interested in the human rights of, 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 of women. And uh, certainly something of an encroaching efficiency uh, rationale can be discerned in anti-poverty initiatives. Um, often, uh, the co-optation and marginalisation of women's empowerment uh, means that women end up working for development rather than vice uh, versa. And uh, Diane Nelson famously, uh, in the late 1990s, described women as an overutilised resource rather than an underutilised resource. And Maxine Molyneux, of course, uh, in the particular context of conditional cash transfer programmes, talking about women being a conduit of policy so that nominally you're empowering women, but really what you're getting at is actually improving everybody else's uh, lives. And, and Sarah Bradshaw uh, has also, of course, uh, written about that. Uh, a slide from Linda Mayu here saying that the use of apparently similar terminology of empowerment, participation, and sustainability conceals radical differences in policy priorities. Although women's empowerment may be a stated aim in the rhetoric of official gender policy and programme promotion, in practice it becomes subsumed in and marginalised by concerns of financial stability and or poverty alleviation. Uh, Eklak here also talking about the ways, and this again has been discussed by uh, the likes of Maxime Molyneux, uh, Constanza Tabush, uh, Sarah Bradshaw, that some uh, programmes to combat uh, poverty reproduce patterns of uh, discrimination, with women basically being used as this volunteer army of labour, uh, something which uh, Maxime Molyneux also talks about in her wonderful uh, paper on uh, uh, mothers and, and the state uh, in the context of uh, conditional cash transfer programmes, and just as if I haven't driven this point home enough, uh, a lovely quote here from Andrea Cornwall and Nanya, Nana uh, Anyadoho, that promises of lifting families and communities out of poverty harness a highly essentialist narrative representing women as hardworking, peaceful, caring, altruistic, and of course, uh, inherently uh, virtuous. 
Okay. Um, well, um, I have some serious concerns with anti-poverty initiatives uh, that either focus on women headed households or women uh, per se, um, and particularly which ignore uh, gender relations uh, within uh, male-headed uh, ha- households and both uh, Sarah and Brian are in the audience tonight, and so you can identify them. Here's his picture. Um, and, uh, and I took that in Barcelona, by the way, when we went to Lourdes Benaria's uh, retirement conference. Um, and um, th- I think there are some major problems with excluding men. We don't give attention to secondary poverty. We can actually alienate men by not uh, including them. Um, and, of course, we increase women's labour loads. Now, women are already suffering from being in the front line of dealing with poverty. So what do we do? We give them a few more tasks to do in the context of volunteer labour for traditional cash transfer programmes or burdening them with the debt that often comes around through uh, comes about with microcredit schemes. Uh, schemes. And Sally Baden points out that the feminisation of poverty uh, argument is not uh, helpful if it's used to justify poverty reduction efforts which uncritically target women headed households or even women in general but which do not challenge the underlying rules of the game. There has been too much emphasis... I really will only take five minutes, I know now. Um, I guess I'm nearly there. Uh, Too much emphasis in anti-poverty programmes on women's condition uh, or income rather than their position, so we need to pay much more attention uh, to that, Uh, recognising, of course, that money does not make for empowerment. And I think what I really like about Caroline uh, Sweetman's views on this is that actually women need resources such as time and freedom uh, to basically uh, form uh, allegiances with other women and other interests. And that is the one thing women do not have enough of uh, time, particularly in the context of these uh, increasing inputs. I also think we're really neglecting empowerment where it, where, where it counts. I know it's difficult to work with households and to try and change uh, you know, very, very uh, ingrained cultural attitudes. But the fact of the matter is, as women capacitate themselves with more skills, as they earn more income, guess what? They're still doing the lion's share of the unpaid reproductive work. You see this in the Gambia. Uh, Women are now getting an education. They often have access to jobs, or a few of them have access to jobs. They're still making their brother's beds. They're still sweeping the compound. They're still the ones doing the washing and running the er errands. So uh, what about the men and boys, I think, there? And and one thing I found really disappointing uh, with the Nike Foundation's girl effects is the way in which uh, this uh, seems to have been associated uh, with a broadening of smart economics approaches among women. So we're now very much investing in girls. If we catch them upstream, we're going to be even more efficient. Um, and, of course, we're neglecting, uh, neglecting uh, the boys. So I think we've got to think about poverty in a much more uh, holistic sense. Here are some of my uh, a brief resume of some of the key problems in anti-poverty uh, programmes. Uh, but basically, I don't think the right way forward is to responsibilise women more for addressing poverty. They're doing quite enough uh, already. So moving forward, here are some humble suggestions, a bit of a wish list. I think we need to work with much more multidimensional conceptualisations of poverty. We need to look at impact as well as incomes. We need to look at male-headed as well as female-headed households, and we really need to start tackling uh, domestic gender relations. 
Let's get away from the situation where we over-rely on women's time and labour. We've got to address empowerment more holistically, engage with those domestic gender relations, bring men on board, and of course, last but not least, and everyone's wish list, I'm sure, challenge and transform inequitable macroeconomic structures. Now, I did have a few ruminations, so I won't bother to go into those in too much detail now, because I know I've only got about three milliseconds to go, uh, but uh, what I would like to... Uh, uh, just um, sort of throw that out to you, and I'd be very interested in your responses. Feminization of poverty, very much um, uh, framed women discursively as victims. Okay, now we've moved to a situation with smart economics, but all of a sudden, women are the answer to um, uh, uh, economic development uh, and poverty reduction uh, going uh, forward. And I just that seems to me to be something of a contradiction, certainly something that uh, other people have noted. And Ananya Roy, whose very uh, famous book, uh, Poverty, Poverty Capital, which looks at microfinance, says a feminist scholar, Chandra Mahanti, once argued the Western eyes of development constructed the third world women primarily as victim. Now she has become an icon of indefatigable efficiency uh, and uh, altruism. And, in fact, I'd like to just here uh, signal up the work of uh, uh, our very own uh, Kalpana Wilson uh, in the Gender Institute, uh, who's also identified uh, these uh, paradoxes. And I quote verbatim from the chapter she very kindly wrote for me uh, in the International Handbook of Gender and Poverty. Uh, The construction of poor women... Uh, as rational economic agents exercising choice is elaborated within the moral framework of neoliberalism which ascribes responsibilities to the poor as a condition for enjoyment of their rights. Now I'm worried with a smart I know, I know, I'm worried with the smart economics agenda I think we may begin to lose the plot and I think we do need to keep uh, gender equality as a human right uh, uh, much more uh, to the fore Uh, But before we do lose the plot, I wonder whether we should just take the money and run. Uh, There's money uh, out there uh, which is largely attached to poverty reduction. Okay, if we're not too fussy about the principle on which that money uh, is handed over, maybe we can still do creative things with it. And I think we are in a much more creative position now. I don't want to end on a negative note than we were 20 years ago. Um, and uh, it's thanks to, I mean, look at you all, uh, the majority of the people in this room are, are, are under 30, um, are certainly under my age, um, which we're not going to disclose uh, for the moment. How does one follow that? Um, <laughs> by questions, of course. Um, so we now have some uh, uh, time for questions, and I thank the speakers for keeping to time. Uh, uh, thank you so much, because I think a really interesting part of public lectures is the public engagement, is the engagement with the speakers. So I'm, I'm now going to throw um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the floor open to questions. Um, when you do ask your questions, it would be nice, very nice, if you could say who you are, uh, and, um, and then... And then we will, and I will direct the, the, those questions back to the speaker. So, um, questions, comments, clarifications, all very welcome, please. And, and we do have a, a roving microphone, so uh, it will come to you. Um, Emma will, will come to you in a bit. Yes. And also, could you say who the question is directed to?
Hi, my name's Leon. Uh, it's kind of to the first speaker, but to everybody, really. Uh, I sort of don't really understand uh, your use of the term of masculinity. It seems like the whole, you use that as a fundamental part of your talk, and yet there's no definition of it whatsoever. And it seems to me, because of that, you end up fighting a battle which is already lost. Uh, because if you attacked the uh, people who define what the values are of masculinity in these cultures which you keep going to, i.e. the church, and actually tackle them and ask them to change and define a new role for masculinity and also for women as well, rather than the ones that are pre-installed by these churches, you'd end up fighting a battle which would be won very easily and very quickly. Thank you. Um, shall, I, shall I collect a couple of questions? Sure. Yes. Yes. It's important to hear as many questions as we can. Kaltner. Uh, uh, Emma Kaltner's right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm Kaltner Wilson, as most of you know from the Gender Institute. Um, and, you know, those were um, both really wonderful and extremely thought provoking. Um, lectures. Um, and I just wanted uh, to uh, address a question to uh, Inderpal um, about um, your very interesting kind of uh, characterization of the kind of specificities which neoliberalism takes in the context of India. Um, and I wondered if you could kind of comment in that context on the um, the specificity of the rise of the Hindu right in India, um, which I think very much fits in with a lot of the themes you've been talking about, um, particularly in the context of uh, the current elections where we're probably going to see Narendra Modi uh, coming to power, um, very much backed by uh, transnational uh, capital and the corporates. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting, you talked about the way in which welfare um, has been, in a way, kind of very much present within the particular Indian version of, of neoliberalism. But when we look at the discourse of the Hindu right at the moment, that's very much being targeted and, and very much under attack um, with these familiar arguments, which we're seeing here as well, but also with the argument of corruption. So I, I wondered if you'd just like to sort of comment on some of those things. Okay, yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you for those questions. I think that I was trying to be very specific about the kind of masculinity that I was talking about in the context of India to think about sort of the kind of... Uh, uh, the, the sort of masculinity that becomes powerful and hegemonic after independence and how that's shifting in the contemporary moment in India. So I was talking, trying to think about that as well and try to link it to the kind of rising inequality in various parts of the world and the kind of emergence of deep um, sort of di divergences between middle classes and, and very wealthy classes. Lokwa Khan has talked about it in terms of transnet, the formation of transnational elites, for instance. So I was trying to take, take the kind of con the specificity of Indian forms of masculinity and try to think about, well, how do these sort of 
rural patriarchies, for instance, link up to this transnational elite? What are the ways in which these new collaborations are taking place? So I thought, you know, I was trying to kind of specify how those those sort of new elites are being formed. In terms of um, Kaltuna, thank you for that question, because um, yes, to a certain extent, I think the Congress Party has done more in, with terms, in terms of welfare, and often in response to their rising popularity or not uh, over the years. So they have all these welfare schemes that they have created. But I wonder if, if, if the Hindu right is, and the rise of Modi is going to completely disappear those, because I also think that there are so many ways in which sort of the bureaucracy has to remain in power in certain ways, and I'm not sure that the neoliberal sort of market model that Modi seems to be using to call out to the middle classes is actually going to disappear previous sort of schemes that the, the Congress government created. So I'm, uh, it's a question, and I'm interested in seeing what will change and what won't. But I doubt that of all that, the, that is going to disappear, all the welfare, though I think that in the kind of name of sort of market efficiency, he's calling out to these kinds of middle classes and the elites in order to, to gain popularity and create this idea that something different is going to happen. But I, I'd be interested, like everybody, because unfortunately, it seems like it will happen. Any more questions? Yes, Imogen. Thank you. Um, I think it might be a comment, because I don't think it's a question that could really be answered, but... I was really thinking all the time of Marsha's paper mm. and her challenge today to us to sometimes try and reverse the gaze. Mm. And I was, I was question, I think, a comment about Sylvia's project, and it's not really fair to ask it, but ask it anyway, which is what would happen if one of your sites had been in the global north? So what if it had been people in Blackpool, for example, that you went to talk to, what would happen? I, I'm interested in what would, ha- that, what, what would happen in terms of your study, both in term, empirically but also theoretically in terms of the use of or the critique of the term feminization of poverty if you included uh, sort of deepening inequalities in the North as well. But also, from a more media studies point of view, because that's also what I do, I was interested what that would do to the visuals, the way that you displayed it. And kind of Marsha's challenge was partly around a kind of challenge around how we think about images of otherness and poverty as well. And I just really, I was thinking about her questions all the time while I was watching. So it's just a kind of set of provocations, really. But thank you for the, both the papers were great. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your provocations, uh, Imogen. Um, the images, uh, I have to confess, apart from some of the ones of the academics featured, they're all mine. Uh, so actually the choice of the images has partly been driven by the fact that as part of my practice, which has always been, I suppose, 
ethical, um, you know, and it's a broad term. But but basically, I've tried to give back to my respondents as many in as many ways as possible. And one of the things you do is you actually take photographs. And I'm particularly thinking here about the the pre-digital uh, camera age as well. I mean, people just never saw pictures of themselves because they couldn't afford it. So I would shuttle back and forth from my field locations, armed with photographs, um, and and uh, you know, and or post them with Christmas cards, etc. Etc. Um, so the images, uh, some of them may be problematic. Was there any anyone in particular that you thought was problematic? I wondered about the one on the Etlac slide, which talked about men basically enjoying free domestic work. There's one in the bottom left corner, which I actually sneaked in from Mexico. Um, it shows a man sitting by a fruit stall. Uh, with his sombrero uh, tipped over his head, and then there's a small child. His wife had actually asked him to look after the fruit stall and mind the child for her while she went on an errand, and, of course, he'd fallen asleep. The child's running round a mock. And I'm, you know, so maybe that is a bit pathologising, so do forgive me uh, for, for, for that. And I don't want to pathologise men, and I think we have to be very careful about that. And, uh, and, um, and uh, then your very, very interesting question on what would happen if Global North came into the picture. Um, I, I, I love that question. It immediately got me thinking about, well, you know, actually one's always got about 20 different research projects in the wings. And um, I, I very, I mean, you know, I wouldn't perhaps necessarily have to do the fieldwork myself, but I've got a Swiss colleague at the moment who's very interested in looking at precarious, uh, 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 what, what, she, what we call precarious prosperity, looking particularly at the at middle-income groups, but actually uh, comparing various countries in the global north and global south. She assures me that we may be able to get a large sum of money from the Swiss National Science Foundation. Um, I'd be delighted to do something like that because when I was working on female headed households um, uh, for, for my, the book that uh, Sumi uh, referred to um, uh, in her very generous introduction um, was um, uh, I did actually do quite a literature review of uh, female household headship in the global north as well as in the global south. It's not the same as getting your feet dirty and working with people uh, but one of the things that I was very, very uh, careful uh, to acknowledge uh, was that in the global north, generally speaking, female-headed households do suffer more in the way of income poverty. And this is, I think, very interesting because, of course, is this, in, in a sense, a product of certainly a stripping-down uh, welfare state and increased uh, uh, hardship, uh, particularly for lone parents? Um, so that's a very interesting question. I'm afraid I'm too tired uh, now to think about what might be different but I'm sure we'll have a chat over a glass of wine any time soon. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> there's, there's a question. Five minutes, Simi. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, like many other in the, others in the room, I had a fabulous day today, and I learned a lot, and um, there were some great scholars on the different panels and a great public lecture right now. Um, unfortunately, two leading scholars that I greatly admire are seem to be saying very different things while still in the spirit of gender empowerment. Um, and I just wanted to see and if we can tease this out a little bit. So Nyla Kabir, in her earlier um, contribution, was talking about how women need a degree of material uh, security uh, to, to, in a sense, to have that covered, to have the headspace for gender empowerment. 
And then Sylvia uh, just kind of pointed out the significance of moving away from just inputs to focus on empowerment. Uh, so it's, it's a bit chicken and egg here, isn't it? Um, so I just was wondering with what we should start um, and whether that kind of fits into the grab the money and run paradigm or how, how you would see that. Yes. Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Dorothea, for that very uh, uh, interesting and, and pertinent um, observation. Um, I'm not trying to argue that income is irrelevant. Um, uh, it's, it's absolutely essential. I'm just worried that the uh, overemphasis on income takes away uh, from other issues which I think are, are very important uh, in understanding uh, gendered privations. Um, and, you know, violence and poverty, for example, uh, are very much uh, in, interrelated. Um, so um, I don't think we can get away from income, and I'm not actually arguing that we should. Uh, but I think we also need to think about how women access income. That is often extremely problematic in its own right because they're often working in feminised jobs. They're getting paid less than men. You know, there are an awful lot of other things, I think, that need to be taken into account uh, rather than just burdening women with financial as well as several other responsibilities for their households. Um, so I don't think Nyla and I are in disagreement on that one at all. Um, and I'm sorry, I should have actually emphasised it was inputs as well as incomes rather than uh, in in inputs versus incomes. Thank you. There's a question right in front. Sorry. Could you also say who you are? Thanks. Um, right, so I'm Stian. I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, thank you for some very fruitful thoughts. I... Um, uh, especially on, on, on Sylvia's talk, you um, really put a lot of things forward that I've been thinking about but could never formulate ever as, as eloquently. Uh, so I wanted to kind of follow up on that because um, this whole, you know, we, we see it everywhere, this whole, you know, discourse around, um, you know, microfinance for women and how it's the solution to, 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 to everything that's wrong. Um, and how it's portraying women as these very responsible creatures, especially in the global south, unlike their male counterparts. Um, and, and this picture obviously comes from, from, from somewhere, but I'm just worried that, you know, activists, academics, that we not only reflect these kind of lived realities, but also produce them, possibly enhance them, uh, what, what, what are your thoughts um, on that? And, and also, how, how radical can these kind of... Um, um, when, when we give you know, money to women in the global south because they use them to take care of the family, how radical is that really? Um, and and where, where are the men in all of this? Should we just accept the fact that they are just you know, useless, can't take care of their kids. Um, right. A lot of thoughts. So, yeah, so, yeah lovely, thanks. Lovely observations. And in fact, I think in a way you've answered your, your own question, actually. Um, I do think that excluding men from anti-poverty initiatives is, is harmful 
for uh, society in general and uh, women in particular because women end up with all of the uh, responsibility and certainly there is a process of, of alienating men. I mean, Costa Rica, where there have been a, a suite of uh, legislative and other initiatives encouraging uh, more support for women in general and female-headed households, men are saying, what about us? Um, and in fact, um, in uh, northwest Costa Rica where I was working, um, and there was a, an important program called... Um, I can't remember what it's called now, but about helping women headed to households in poverty, which then became a general uh, uh, female empowerment poverty alleviation program. Uh, this involved sensitization sessions about human rights, etc., etc. And a lot of the women said, please, please, let the men come along to these sessions because they're not understanding. And if they don't understand... You can tell us anything you like about our rights and, and where we can exercise them, but you're not going to get uh, the, uh, uh, the support. So they were desperate for men to be involved. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there weren't enough resources to actually increase the coverage. So um, I, I, we, we can't go forward um, keeping, uh, you know, keeping men out of the picture. We've got to stop working with binaries, and we've got to start getting everyone involved. So I think, you, in a sense, you answered your own question. It's deeply problematic. OK, I'm going to take... One question now. Uh, one and maybe no, just one. a tiny short question if somebody wants to, because I, I'm also wanting to ask the speakers a particular oh, no. question. I've been mean, oh, no. holding on to it for it's a while. But, but, but developmentalism, is it? Yeah, don't no. <laughs> you have to wait to hear it. There's a, there's a, there's a question there, Emma. So. Simonia Marino from Geography. I, I just wanted to thank you, Sylvia, because uh, this smartness that comes out from your uh, slides was, was great. I'm an economist, as you know, but not all economists are the same. And actually, <laughs> I have to say that I found myself in my research, I mean, local economic development, a couple of years ago, in, uh, in front of 500 people uh, in a poor region in the south of Italy, where... Um, I mean, there was also an earthquake and uh, these 500 people hadn't seen a roof on their head for four years and there was an OECD guy trying to explain to them that they should be smart. So now we dragged <laughs> away uh, the OECD guy just on time to avoid obviously killing. But, uh, you know, what, what we should probably do interdisciplinary in our Department, for example, but I mean, it, it crossed the border so south, north, or economics versus other discipline is precisely to fight against, you know, new labels on old wine, because what is behind this is the old same ideology. And, you know, I mean, in this is just a comment to uh, prompt more uh, kind of uh, linkages, because we are exactly targeting the same enemy. Well, that, Thank that, you. That, that I think is a wonderful comment in terms of the whole spirit of today. Um, and of course, you know, we are in one of the most, um, uh, you know, um, interdisciplinary institutions uh, in, in the world. I'm so pleased to have uh, Simona as my head of department. Um, and, uh, you know, so. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, any other questions before we go uh, and have some wine?
What? Me? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm going to inhabit uh, my privileges chair for like one minute and just, or maybe less. And I want to kind of, I think the kinds of things that I was thinking about while listening through both your papers was, of course, the discourse of autonomization and responsabilization, which is sort of something that both of you um, have been referring to, albeit differently, but that is the kind of, uh, the discourse that runs right across uh, uh, both your papers, cuts across uh, both your papers. And, and, I, and, I, and I was sort of wondering, in relation to um, uh, Interpol, I was very struck by when you said, uh, when you talked about public service humanitarianism. And I thought, you know, and that was a very striking uh, uh, phrase to me. And I, and I, and I sort of said, oh, I want to hear about this some more. And, and then I started thinking a little bit more, and I, and I was trying to think about in terms of you know, thinking in terms of the transnational and sort of transnational humanitarianism and securitization and the discourse of rights and, and what a powerful mocktail and cocktail that's, that's sort of becoming. And, and, and if you think, you know, in terms of the whole discourse around humanitarianism uh, you know, the, the, uh, and rights, which is, which is all about sort of how, um, you know, people like Rancière and others have talked about how, uh, you know, human rights have become reduced to becoming rights of victims. That's what humanitarian discourses do. They, they, you know, they, that's what they're, they're producing. And, and so, therefore, they've become defunct and, and completely uh, useless because they have become. And so, therefore, those victims need others to speak for them because then those are, they are unable to speak for them uh, themselves. And also, what that does is, of course, it depoliticizes. Right. So this is the work that, that under neo- neoliberalism and uh, you know this whole trans and humanitarianism, um, humanitarian discourses under neoliberalism are depoliticizing um, uh, discourses. But I was quite struck by the slides you were talking about and, and the people you were you were referring to in that context. I mean, they were overtly political, right? I mean, what you would constitute as a politics of contestation and conflict and, you know, so it's deeply political in that context. And I was wondering how does that discourse of depoliticization and, and, you know, that, that reduction of, 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 of that sort of, uh, you know, which, which people are very much struggling. And that is something that, that I think that that, um, that has kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, ex, uh, you know taken up so much, uh, is taking up so much of excitement, particularly in philosophy and political theory in the global north, mm-hmm. which is very much about this. But I'm, when I'm looking at what you're saying, you know, you're sort of, yeah. And for Sylvia, I was thinking uh, in relation to feminization of poverty, um, you know, you were sort of saying that, again, there's a responsabilization mm-hmm. discourse that you were talking about, autonomization, responsibilization. That's very much evident here. Um, but I'm thinking that, you know, when you were sort of saying towards the end, um, you know, we, we might want to use it strategically, right? So there are some gains and some losses, but we might do well to use it strategically. And I'm wondering whether what might be, would the losses be more than the gains, right? So in terms of thinking in terms of how this discourse reproduces and re-entrenches the, the same thing that you're trying to sort of in, in some ways contest. And, and so what might be the gains and losses? So, um, lovely, lovely point. And I think that's got to be the subject for the next Gender Institute <laughs> conference. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very valid one. And it, it really, you know, um, about weighing up the pros mm-hmm. and the cons uh, uh, is, is, is very apt. I think, you know, um, I think that there have been so many struggles mm-hmm. that are going on. If you look at what's happening in China, if you look at everywhere around the world, the, the Arab Spring, what's going on in China, what's going on in India, people are not quiet. 
right? I think people are protesting and marching. Now, what the media reports on and looks mm-hmm. at makes a certain kind of sense in the ways that I was suggesting, right? But I also want to say that there are many protests that I didn't talk about uh, that the media doesn't cover. The, you know, there's this woman who lives, Iram Sharmila, who's been protesting state violence in India for many, for a long time, and what goes on in Jharkhand. In the, I mean, so there's so much protest and that's happening everywhere. And so it's a question that what neoliberalism has led to, so what I'm arguing is it led to these, these kinds of insecurities that are taking shape in particular shapes and forms, right? And certain, but they're all manifesting at the kind of shifts that have happened in economies, the kind of rise of massive inequalities, and the, the kind of depredations of this, this kind of elite class that we're seeing that's happening. And people are not quiet about it. But, but so I don't agree with the depoliticization of these. And actually, talking to your colleague, David Lewis, yesterday, we were talking about James Ferguson's book, The Anti-Politics Machine. He was reminding me, he said, well, Ferguson writes about the World Bank as an anti-politics machine, not so much even NGOs, Good. right? Which we have all taken for granted. So there are many mm-hmm. ways of, of, of that people, and, and you know, even if some of my work has been looking at NGOs, and some people argue that NGOs are this manifestation of neoliberalism and their depoliticization, but actually, if you look at some of the evidence of this, uh, many you cannot control the results of what the NGOs do. So I would hesitate that to make that cause and effect That's argument right. that if the NGOs are depoliticizing, then actually people are getting depoliticized. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, no, there agree. are cases in which, which people might disagree with mm. that. Mm. Thank you very much. On that on that heartening note, um, I am going to now bring the proceedings to a close uh, and going to sort of uh, invite you all to join us, have a very well-deserved glass or two or more of, of wine, <laughs> yes, and other little things to eat. Um, so, yes, I'll so see you out in the foyer. Okay. Thank you.